Excel Pro. With any kind of behavioral change, you only can really help the people who want to change. You can't really beat someone over the head and say, you need to be different. I don't really find that works very well. So largely, we're hoping and trying to work with the people who are looking for something different and looking for change and then hoping that impacts the profession over time. Welcome to Excel Pro, where we provide interviews and products to accelerate your professional development. I'm Celeste Headley. Today, we'll talk about loneliness in the workplace. My guest is Tara Antoni Pillay. Tara is the founder of Cultivate, where she uses her roots in big law, as well as a master's degree in psychology, to teach organizations the science of well-being. We'll discuss the detrimental effects of a lack of connection in the workplace. The increase of remote work has left many especially those who started their careers during the pandemic, isolated and dissatisfied with their jobs. Tara offers advice on how small, sustained behavioral changes are the best way to improve these kinds of environments. Something as simple as picking up the phone to call a coworker and avoiding Zoom fatigue can help a team become healthier and more connected. Excel Pro's interviews and products accelerate your professional development. Our mission is to improve your day-to-day job performance and make your career goals achievable. For a transcript of this episode and to learn more about the Excel Pro community, visit joinexcelpro.com. That's J-O-I-N-A-C-C-E-L-P-R-O.com. And now for my conversation with Tara and Tony Poulet. in a global loneliness crisis, according to the WHO, before the pandemic began. I can only imagine that has gotten worse. Can we start by defining loneliness in the workplace? Because loneliness, when it comes to our personal lives, as far as uh, a psychological definition, means a gap between how much contact and intimacy we want and how much we're getting. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean how many people we're interacting with. Maybe we're interacting with a lot of people, but we're not getting as much as we want. So what does that mean when it gets to the office? It translates into something, I think, very similar in the workplace with some slight differences. But basically, the research shows that, for example, people who have a best friend at work have higher well-being in terms of mental health, in terms of physical health, but also in terms of things that are wrapped up in job satisfaction, like engagement, like creativity, like having meaning and purpose at work. The other element is the leadership component. We know that leaders impact the well-being and the happiness, to use a colloquial term, of people in the workplace, often more than their spouse does, more than their therapist or their doctor does. So that's who you're spending time with. So if you have a connection with that person, that also contributes or detracts from how connected or how lonely you feel. And then the final element, I think, which is a little bit unique about work, is this idea of what researchers call high-quality connections. You don't necessarily have to have an intimate relationship with someone to have it lessen loneliness or be meaningful. 
So these are things like, are there people at work who support you? They call it task enabling in the research. But really, it is someone who is kind of like a coach, someone who helps you along, supports you, brings out the best in you, someone who treats you respectfully. That's another marker. And then the final marker is actually play, right? Do you feel, do you have a sense of playfulness at work? And that can be a passive interaction with someone. It doesn't necessarily have to be a best friend, someone you work with all the time. There have been a lot of warnings from medical professionals to take loneliness seriously. Mm -hmm. I've read some studies saying that loneliness can be as bad for your health as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. Why don't we take loneliness seriously as a health threat? So... That's hard for me to answer generally. I think largely those statistics have been borne out in many longitudinal studies. So two generations of studies at Harvard that followed people throughout their lifetime that basically said, like you said, loneliness is more impactful than high blood pressure, more impactful than smoking. But yeah, I think it's also more amorphous, right? If someone dies, you might say they died of a broken heart, but you can't really trace it back. It's less clear and it has a impact throughout their life. I think what we're seeing in the pandemic too, and what studies are starting to show is that that loneliness, that lack of attachment amped up other risk factors. It amped up things like anxiety, it amped up things like mental health challenges, it amped up things like alcohol use disorders, substance use disorders. And I think they're just starting to tie those things together, but it's complex as opposed to an easy connection. There's also a difficulty, especially for leaders, in helping to address this because, as I understand, sometimes the shame of admitting I'm lonely prevents people from getting help. Is that true? I see us making some big strides. I work in the legal industry where I think we're always maybe a little bit behind what some other industries are doing. But I think we definitely are making strides in that. But there is a certain amount of shame and maybe it's not seen as a legitimate health or workplace issue when, in fact, I think it's probably one of the most important ones. The other thing I'll say on that subject, and this is a drum that I beat a lot, is that the same issues that employees are having, that team members are having, leaders are also often having those same issues. And that is a complicating factor in terms of trying to rely on when you have a whole generation of people experiencing the same thing. So who is being affected the most? Is there a category, especially in the legal profession, who are the most affected by loneliness? I don't know that there are any good statistics on that, but I can tell you what I see. The people who came out of law school right before the pandemic, during the pandemic, those folks, I think, have really struggled to integrate themselves into wherever they're working. And in the case of a firm, they're often working remotely or in a hybrid setting. They're getting their assignments by email. They're getting feedback by email. There is not a lot of interaction and even just the casual interaction with their peers of being on a team or having someone down the hall. That's where I see the biggest gap because some of the people who are further along in their career, they have different relationships. They're not living in an apartment by themselves. They're living in a home with family members. They had pre-existing relationships in their workplaces. 
So those younger people probably have the hardest side of it. So this is difficult for a leader if you're trying to help your team. And especially Mm -hmm. with the new research we have showing that video conferencing, for example, Zoom fatigue is real. So how do we mitigate this? What kind of skills could a leader be focusing on to help people if they're suffering through loneliness? It's a really interesting question. And the way I think about it is that we sort of have to approach this really globally. So not in terms of this is an individual problem, but in terms of this is going to be a really long-term problem if we don't address it. There's a lot that's lost in email and a lot that's gained by the telephone or even Zoom. And that taking that time to... Wait, did you say telephone like just the phone? Yeah, like (laughs) that's the phone. Yeah, regular old phone. You can use any phone, but just pick up the phone. I think it's great for clarifying. It's also more likely that you have that kind of high quality connection interaction that I was talking about before. Maybe it's asking someone a question about what they did over the weekend. Maybe it's asking someone about their pet or their children or their vacation, right? But you have some type of interaction that goes beyond just an email with instructions. I wonder if the type of skills that are required of leaders right now may be different than the type of leadership skills that were either modeled to them or even that they were trained in when they were coming Mm -hmm. up. And you're nodding your head already that our listeners can't see, but it sounds like you agree. The type of tough love that many people were trained in as leaders is not often what many leadership consultants are advising now. Yeah, I think that's 100% true. And in this space with professionals, it's maybe even a little bit more complicated because it is often a kind of an apprentice model, right? Where you learn from watching someone else practice. If you're not actually in the room watching them practice, that was a leadership model, right? And There's probably more need for a pivot. You probably heard me sigh because I think really, even though I do this, I don't think training in and of itself makes a tremendous amount of difference. For certain people, it can put a kernel of the idea in their brain. But really, long-term behavioral change inside a profession takes time. We were forced to pivot really fast in the pandemic And now we're figuring out what things look like, whether people are coming back to the office at all, whether they are coming back two days, what does that look like? And largely we find that people don't want to come back to the office full time. Yeah, full time. But there's a balance there and some connection with real life people is important. So for those leaders who are listening... Mm-hmm. You've just explained how serious loneliness can be. It can shorten your lifespan. It doesn't get a whole lot more serious than that. You've explained that it's widespread, that it's affecting probably not just many people on their teams, but perhaps leaders themselves, and that it can be tricky to address it. And it mm-hmm. sounds like you also just said that this is something that takes time to learn how to address mm-hmm. and training may not help. So what would you suggest that a good leader do at this moment? The way that the research shows is most effective to do that is if you have support. It doesn't mean that there should be no training, but just the training is a start. It's information. And then you follow it on with things like coaching, with things like institutional support of that behavioral change. 
there's a lot of research in the medical field on how kind of nudges support changing behavior with doctors. When they give a prescription for opiates, for example, and there's a little pop-up that says, hey, like you are the top prescriber of opiates in this hospital. Someone might think twice about whether they're going to prescribe that. Same kind of thing with behavior change around loneliness. Have you checked in with your team today? Have you put it on your calendar? What are the things that you do to support it? Because just thinking about it is often not enough. Okay, so that sounds like a daily practice Mm -hmm. as opposed to just a once a year, watch these videos and take a quiz to make sure you understand. Yeah. How did you get into this particular field of expertise? What led you here? I'm a lawyer by training. I was a tax lawyer at a large law firm, Arnold and Porter, and I've always been very interested in well-being. I've been a yoga teacher for a long time and a mindfulness teacher. I just didn't really think of that interest as having a place with law firms or professionally. And then after taking some time off, I actually went back to school. So I have a master's in applied psychology from Penn. And my research there and my work was centered around empathetic leadership. And so that's what I studied. What pulled you into that, though? Tax lawyer and then moving that into the empathetic studies, that connection may not be fully clear to me. (laughs) And it's a very good question. Yeah. As a younger person, I would say I was very practical. There's the tax lawyer part. There's the tax lawyer in me. And I'm not a person who hated being a lawyer. There's many things about it that I enjoyed. But when I left practice, I actually left to stay home with my four children. I think that was a big pivot point for me that I was doing something that, to be perfectly honest, was just what I wanted to do and wasn't particularly practical. And when I left, I think I always knew that I would go back to a second career that was different, right? That my sort of second career would be psychology and well-being. I toyed around with going back to school to be a therapist. And then I landed on this because it's really an intersection of all of my interests and probably a better fit for me overall than being a tax lawyer was. Although, like I said, I do not malign being a lawyer. It's a great first profession for me. And so you founded Cultivate. And you clearly still like lawyers because you spend your time doing workshops and training and consulting Mm -hmm. for lawyers for their professional development. But now you're focused on providing well-being for them. Why do you think people in the legal profession need this? Lawyers generally, I would say, have higher than average rates of substance misuse disorders, mental health disorders. They also generally have fairly high rates of job dissatisfaction. I'll just call it that. And what we're trying to do is offer people some small changes, small adjustments, bring the lessons of psychology, of neuroscience into a profession that could really use some small adjustments. We're not trying to say do something totally different, but bring some small adjustments into a profession that could really make a big impact in how people experience their jobs. And Cultivate is not the only way in which you are trying to help people find well-being in the workplace. What are the other activities you're engaged in? 
I am the chair of the DC Bar Lawyer Assistance Committee. And so that committee really is comprised of people who are members of the DC Bar. And it's really mostly focused on outreach for substance misuse and mental health disorders. I'm very close with the counselors who staff and run the lawyer assistance program in D.C., and they provide free services to all D.C. bar members. So if people need help, that is a place to turn. Every state bar has some version of a lawyer assistance program. And historically, I think people were a little afraid to reach out because there was an association with ethics violations or punishment that might be related, but they're really a great, great resource for people who are in trouble or just struggling, law students as well. So if you are a law student in D.C., you can also reach out to the LAP. I'm also very involved on the research side, so with the Institute for Wellbeing and Law, I vice chair their research and scholarship committee. And we're working on a lot of both longitudinal studies on recovery, also some studies on what works when it comes to training, when it comes to interventions, when it comes to supporting people in behavior change. We know a lot about other professions, about other industries. We know less about what specifically works in law firms. Whose responsibility in the end is a lawyer's well-being? Does that responsibility fall on themselves? Is it the responsibility of their firm? Is that something that is part of their family, friends, or personal life? Where is that responsibility? I think all of those things. I don't view this as a simple issue to tackle. The most important thing that I think about is that you can't really separate well-being from other aspects of who you are, right? So if your well-being is suffering, your work is probably suffering, your relationships may be suffering. So I think that it really becomes everyone's responsibility. And let's look beyond lawyers. We have a well-being and a loneliness crisis really broadly. So anything you learn in this workplace environment will largely be applicable to your teenage children, your elderly parents. It's all the same issue. Last question for you. How big of an obstacle is the culture of the legal profession? And by that, I mean the sort of tough fighting, staying up all night, working all hours, clients expecting you to work harder. And the partners in the firm are the ones that work the hardest and have a three martini lunch and are in the office at all hours. How much does that type of culture complicate the work you do? With any kind of behavioral change, you only can really help the people who want to change. You can't really beat someone over the head and say, you need to be different. I don't really find that works very well. So Largely, we're hoping and trying to work with the people who are looking for something different and looking for change and then hoping that impacts the profession over time. I don't find the culture to be overwhelmingly negative, but I do think that the realities, the structure of how law firms are built is a bit of a challenge. They're largely partnerships. They're not answering to a board of directors. They're not making public filings. 
They are a partnership and that has benefits, but it also makes it a little bit more challenging in terms of the ethos or what is the meaning or what is the sort of identity of this group of people as a whole, right? And what they value. It's a little bit different. And so I think that structure, that partnership structure creates some challenges. Great. Tara, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Celeste. So nice to be with you. Excel Pro's interviews and products accelerate your professional development. Our mission is to improve our members' day-to-day job performance and make career goals achievable. For a transcript of this conversation and to learn more about the Excel Pro community, visit joinaccelpro.com. That's J-O-I-N-A-C-C-E-L-P-R-O.com. Thanks again to today's guest. Please let your colleagues know about Excel Pro. As our community grows, it grows more useful for its members. Remember to send your comments and career questions to questions at joinexcelpro.com. You can also call us at 614-642-2235. That's 614-64-EXCEL. Excel Pro is powered by Kaplan. The producers are Jay Ray Sparks and Jeff Eisenman. The team is Shweta Kulkarni, Matt Crossman, Caitlin Cole, Jarek Goff, Inesh Bose, Arnesh Bose, Aliza Solerio, Jessica Stillman, and Neil Ungerleiter. I'm your host, Celeste Headley. Remember, we excel together. See you next time.